33-37. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God, and having received it from the Father, the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this which you both see and hear. For it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I take your enemies, until I make your enemies a footstool for thy feet. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? I spent 32 years in the Coast Guard and Coast Guard Reserves, if you wouldn't for my... So I'm, I really enjoy the theme of maritime. So... Um, I'm going to give the sailor's prayer, which is similar to our uh, 23rd Psalm. Uh, if you don't know that maritime, uh, I think you can still relate to it. Let us bow our heads. The Lord is my pilot. I shall not go adrift. He lighteth my passage across dark channels. He steereth me through deep waters. He keepeth my log. He guideth me through the evening star for my safety's sake. Yea, though I sail mid the thunders and tempest of life, I shall feel no peril, for thou art with me. The vastness of the sea upholds me. Surely fair winds and safe harbors shall be found all the days of my life, and I shall moor fast and secure forever. And all God's people said, and I'll leave you this one thought. If you find yourself drowning in life, just remember your lifeguard walks on water. Well, good morning. Thank you, Teddy and Liza. Y'all good? Everybody good? Is anybody in here? Just me? Goodness gracious, y'all. If you have your Bibles, uh, I'm going to ask you to go to two places. Uh, Psalm 110. I didn't do it. That's me. I mean, I ain't doing nothing different, am I? We good? Can I try it again? There we go. Uh, Psalm 110, uh, and then uh, flip to Acts 2. Uh, this morning, uh, we are going to uh, obviously cover the, the verses that Teddy and Liza read for us. Uh, we're not going to take uh, like a break from Acts, uh, but I'm going to start in Acts, and I'm going to go to Psalm 110, because uh, I want to expound upon uh, kind of where we ended last week. And so, uh, let me say it like this, and kind of why I felt led to go this way. Uh, when I got into my office on Monday and Tuesday, I'd actually had a uh, plan to uh, finish through verse 41. Uh, and then last week, uh, the Lord kind of began to speak to me and leading my heart in something very specific. Uh, let me see if I can introduce it like this. Uh, when, I, when I say to you, or I ask you a question, when you think about Jesus, what comes to mind? Uh, like, what's your answer there? Like, Jesus current. Like, whenever you're, wall, you're living your life and you begin to think about Jesus, uh, what, what comes to your mind? Uh, and here's what I want to submit. 
uh, as an introduction uh, to where we're going this morning is, I would say that many of us, uh, I wouldn't say we have an inaccurate view of Jesus. I would say we may have a too small view of Jesus. Uh, and, and, and when it comes to life, when we think about Jesus, for many of us, uh, what we began to think about is this humble Galilean carpenter who walked around and didn't really uh, raise his voice. He got, you know, he got angry one time. Uh, if I need to grab a handheld, I'll grab a handheld. Uh, I'm not going. Hey, there we go. Goodness gracious. This is our first time ever having a public service. Uh, we have microphones and things like that. We've never worked before. Uh, but anyway, trying to get back to where I'm going. I think many of us, when we, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hold it right here. Is that okay? All right, I'm, I'm gonna, I'm, I'll glue it to my stomach. Uh, <clears throat> but anyway, I've actually, you know, as I got older, I've actually got something to prop my hand up on. Uh, uh, but anyway, uh, Mr. Cooley asked me earlier, what happened to your hair? I also got one of these now. Uh, <clears throat> But when we think about Jesus, I think many of us, we have a, a too small of a view. And what we began to think about, specifically when we think about Jesus, we began to think about a guy who walked around in the, in, you know, the ancient Near East, and he was a nice guy. He, he never really raised his voice. He, he did some miracles, and those things are true. Uh, but I want to submit something to you this morning for, to get our mind going, is that's not the Jesus that we worship right now. Uh, that's not the same, that's not the Jesus that Peter was talking about that ascended and he sat down at the right hand of God. And I want you to know this morning, church, uh, just by start, I'm going to go ahead and give you my sermon, is that we, we, the Jesus we serve, he's risen, he's victorious, he's powerful, his muscles are bigger than ours. Uh, he, 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 he's victorious, and he isn't just this, this weak guy anymore, uh, but he's actually a risen, ruling, reigning king of the universe. Uh, and, and that changes everything for me and you. Imagine how we would live our life if we really believed that Jesus was on his throne ruling the whole world right now. That everything is still under his authority. Even in the craziness of what 2020 and 2021 has been, that Jesus is still seated there, that the Father looked at him and said, hey, sit down. Sit down right here beside me. And there's this, this, this calm that's going about Jesus, even at this moment. And I, I believe that's what was in the mind of the apostles as we see Peter begin standing up, that these 12 men actually believed that Jesus was on his throne. That these 12 men actually believed that, that God had exalted him and set him down at his right hand into a place of authority. Sorry, I got fired up before I even got on my notes. If you haven't been with us, we're walking through Acts as the church. We've been here for many weeks now. We're now trying to finish up Acts chapter 2. And what, where, where we've been over the past few weeks is that in the beginning of Acts 2, the, the day of Pentecost happens and the, the Holy Spirit comes down. 
And as a result of that, the, the 12 apostles that were there began to praise God in, in other languages. And it just happened by chance that, that Pentecost was a pilgrim feast. And so there were literally thousands of, of people who had come into Jerusalem in honor of, of Pentecost. And, and when they were there, that was the day that the Holy Spirit fell upon the apostles. And they began praising God and they... <clears throat> Those who were there in Jerusalem for the festival heard them praising God in their own language. And, and, and you know, that's just a beautiful sight that even before, I want you to check this, even before the Spirit had descended upon the apostles, even before Peter began to preach the sermon that God was already seeking these people who were going to be there in Jerusalem, that through his ordinance for them to come to Jerusalem, for Pentecost, we see God already seeking them. But anyway, so they hear. They hear them praising God in their own language. And in some, there were two responses. One of those was a place of mocking. Some of those who heard said, these dudes must be drunk. They must have been drinking new wine. Uh, and they're just beside themselves because they've, they've been drinking. And Peter says, dude, it's only 9 o'clock in the morning. Nobody's drunk yet. Uh, and I'm going to say, yeah, but nobody, nobody's been drinking and then the other response was there were people who marveled and were in amazement of what had happened. So Peter, along with 11, stands, and Peter begins to preach the first Christian sermon. That's where we've been the last two weeks. He begins his sermon uh, talking about how what they were experiencing had been prophesied by the prophet Joel. Uh, that in the last days that the Lord would pour uh, his spirit upon all mankind uh, and that, that, that all people would be able to know and understand and hear from the Lord and be used by the Lord. And he uses the word last days to introduce in their mind for the Jew. And when we think about last days, they automatically began to think about the messianic age. That when the Messiah would come, it would usher in the last days. That was very uh, well known. They, 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 if you read the Old Testament, you any time or most of the time when you see the word about something about the Messiah, it, it associated with the last days. And so Peter stands up and says, in the last days, quoting the prophet Joel. And so immediately these listeners, these people who were in Jerusalem, Jerusalem for Pentecost, who had heard the, 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 them praising God in their own language, now here's Peter talk about the last days. And so in their mind, they would have began to ask, well, if it's the last days, then we have to, it had to be the Messiah. The Messiah had to come. And so Peter begins to answer this question that they didn't ask out loud, but he says, yes, the, the Messiah is it's Jesus Christ, and uh, Jesus of Nazareth, the man whom you saw. Right, And so Peter begins through his sermon to give four reasons that Jesus was the Messiah. He started in verse 22 talking about the life of Jesus, that, that, that God attested to Jesus by the way his signs and wonders and mighty works. And then he said also the death of Jesus, his death show, it proved to you that he was the Messiah. Not only that, but his resurrection, that, that God raised him from the dead. And fourthly, and this is where I want to camp out this morning, is his exaltation. Verse 33, it says, and being therefore exalted at the right hand of God. That Peter says, this is how we know he's the Messiah, that, that he lived, that he died, that he raised again. But now he's been exalted and he's been exalted, exalted to the right hand of God. Look at verse 37. 
So Peter gets done and he says, uh, in verse 36, he says, I want you to know that God has made him both Lord and Christ. This is Jesus whom you crucified. And verse 37 says this, now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter, brothers, what shall we So after hearing about this Jesus who they had seen, this Jesus that they had rejected, this Jesus whom they crucified, who God raised from the dead and exalted, and and Peter's saying, this Jesus, he is both Lord and Messiah. When they heard this, they were cut to the heart. What had they heard? They had heard that they were charged with rejecting Jesus and executing their Messiah. They had heard that God made this Jesus both Lord and Messiah. And then they heard that this Jesus is now sitting at the right hand of God. So when they heard this, what did they hear? They heard these three things. They heard that this Jesus is now seated at the right hand of the Father. So when they heard it, two things happened. The first one is that they were cut to the heart, Scripture says. That they were cut to the heart at hearing that they they had rejected and crucified their Messiah. That that Jesus, this same Jesus, is the Lord and Messiah. And that God had raised him and set, set him at the right hand of the Father. Now they were cut to the heart. These people who once were hard-hearted, these are the people who rejected Jesus. These are the people who gave Jesus over to the Romans to be crucified. Now they were cut to the heart upon hearing what Peter has said. The word cut to the heart literally means pierced. Their heart was pierced. Their heart of stone was pierced. It's only used here in the New Testament. It means to pierce or to stab. It it depicts, listen to me, it depicts something sudden or unexpected. These people didn't come to Pentecost thinking that they were going to believe in Jesus. But something suddenly happened. Something pierced their heart. They were not expecting it and they were cut to the heart. Isn't that evidence of the Holy Spirit's work? How many of us in here have ever said, hey, I wasn't expecting it, but then this happened. I I wasn't necessarily running after the Lord, but all of a sudden this happened. He got my attention. I was pierced to the heart is how we know that the spirit was work as he took these hearts that once had rejection of Jesus and now is piercing their heart. It shows the Spirit's work as it was sudden and unexpected, but this is what we see happening, is that they realized they couldn't escape their indictment. Like, I understand that, that we're, obviously we understand it's the Holy Spirit who cuts their heart. It is the Holy Spirit who brings us under conviction. But we have to remember this about definitely apostolic preaching, is their preaching form was a very, it, it was to persuade them. They were preaching in a way to to convict the heart and the intellect. That when Peter was preaching, he was very specific because he knew these people and the way they thought. So therefore, his preaching was to persuade them to believe in Jesus. His, His preaching had purpose. Listen to me. His preaching wasn't just to hear the sound of his own voice. Anytime we run across preachers like that, and maybe may I never get there, we need to get away. There was a purpose in the preaching. That preaching was is to persuade people to trust in Jesus. And so he preaches, and they couldn't escape their indictment. They became overcome with grief and remorse. 
So when they had heard, they were cut to the heart. And number two is they asked a question. They said, well, what can we do? If we're guilty of killing the Messiah, if we're guilty of killing the one that God had sent, then what can we do? What's our response? In essence, what they're asking is, what can we do to be saved from this Messiah that we executed? How can we escape this indictment? How, what must we do to be saved? And the reality is, is how we answer this question is of chief importance. For me and you this morning, how we answer the question, what must I do to be saved, is of, of chief importance because a wrong answer has eternal tragedy. Our enemy has made great efforts to confuse the answer to this question. Even using scripture, we have legalists, which says this work righteous, where we have to live a certain way and do all the right things and make sure that we're, we're doing all the good. We have moralists who says, I just have to live a life that's 51% good and 49% bad, and God's going to receive me. We have uh, even, even Peter's listeners here, what have said, racial heritage is what's going to get them into heaven because they were born Jew. That means that they were we're going to be able to get saved. A universalist would say that, that, that because Jesus died, we all ultimately will be saved. And what we will come to understand at the end of the sermon is that that's not true at all, by the way. <clears throat> the ritualist would look at this passage and see Peter's response to be baptized and say, no, it's rituals. All we have to do is be baptized to be saved. And Peter gives the correct answer in the closing statements of this sermon and Luke will preach next week, and he will give you Peter's answers. I'm not, going there. I'm not going that far this morning. That was just an introduction to set Luke up for next week. What must we do? Luke next week will walk through. But I want to do is dive deeper into what I believe the Holy Spirit used to prick their hearts this morning. Let's look a little bit closer. Let's look at what they have been indicted of. So when they heard these things, they heard these things out of Peter's mouth, they were cut to the heart. What is it about what they heard that cut them to the heart? And number one is the realization that they had executed their Messiah. The second is that they, really, that they themselves had done it. And number three, and I, I want, this is where we're going to kind of camp out mostly is that I think they fear the fear of the Messiah's wrath. So Justin, let's don't go to hellfire brimstone. Listen to me. Think about it for a moment. David quotes Psalm 110 when he says that the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Like what they realized, not only did they forsake or kill this Jesus, but now he was alive again. Let's think rationally for a moment. Now he's alive. Not only is he alive, but he's, seating, he's seated, seated at the right hand of the Father. And the Father has promised him, wait here until I make all of your enemies your footstool. Is there a greater enemy than the one who crucified the Messiah, y'all? Like, you following me here? Like, so in their minds was, oh my gosh, we missed him, but he's alive. And his father said, I'm going to make all of your enemies your footstool. Now, anybody in their right mind would be fearful of that. Anybody would. 
right? So just don't, don't you, I'm getting, I'm going there this morning. I've already had conversations this morning in a meeting. I'm going there because there is a fear of God. If you're an enemy, if you're, if you're not a child of God, God is to be feared. 100%. And we see it right here. I got to keep going. I've got notes. I got to And this, I believe, is what the Spirit used to cut them to the heart. Because when, that, 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 when he says to make your enemies your footstool, it literally means you will have ultimate authority and absolute victory. And the fourth reason I think they were, couldn't escape their indictment because they realized what they had done couldn't be undone. But I think that statement, when Peter quotes Psalm 110, when it says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand, until I make all of your enemies your footstool. I think that is what the Spirit used to cut them to the heart. And this morning, I want to talk, and we're going to get a little theological in here. I want to teach on the doctrine of the session of Jesus. I know we, we don't try to throw around theological words in here. We usually try to make things easy to understand. And so the session of Jesus literally means the sitting of Jesus. As in Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father, this is one of the most beautiful doctrines that me and you could ever study. This is one of the the most beneficial uh, because it it teaches us a few things. Uh, It reminds us of who Jesus is right now and and that that, that one day that there is, that it reminds us that the Father looked at him and said, sit down, but then he said, until. As in there, he's sitting right now. Currently, he's sitting, and it means certain things for me and you, but there's an until there. There's going to be one day that he's going to stand up again, right? And so it, it reminds us of that. So the session of Jesus is the act of sitting. Like when you think about Congress being in session, it's whenever they are, they are in there, and they are in their meeting. They're in session. They're seated, and they're in meetings, and, and that, that's what that picture of the session of Jesus Peter through David gives us a picture of this sitting of Jesus when he says he's been exalted to the right hand of the Father. Sitting indicates a place of power and authority. As Bruce says that a seated priest is the guarantee of a finished and accepted work. So when we see Peter saying that Jesus was seated at the right hand of the Father, our mind goes to absolute authority, but also a finished and accepted work. What we see in this great doctrine of the session of Jesus or the sitting of Jesus is that we see this beautiful, unique reality of Christianity that Jesus Christ is both king and priest is that this morning when this Jesus that we're worshiping, he is still seated at the right hand of the Father. And even at this moment, the Father is still making his enemies his footstool. And being seated at the right hand of God, it's a place of total authority and supremacy, but it's also a place that a priest sits of an accepted sacrifice. And I think it would do us good to see and sit in this, when we look at this Lord of glory. As I said in the beginning, Jesus isn't this humble Galilean carpenter. He's strong, and he's fierce, and he's victorious. But at the same time, he's gentle and sympathizing. 
So Psalm 110, if you have your Bibles there, if not, it's going to come up on the screen. Let's read this psalm that, that Peter quotes, and we're going to look at this great doctrine of the sitting of Jesus whenever the Father said, sit here at my right hand. I'm going to read the total psalm, Psalm 110, 1 through 7. Verse 1 is what we see quoted in Peter's sermon. Actually, Psalm 110, 1 is the most quoted Old Testament verse that we see in the New Testament. Uh, you see it over and over again. I'll give you some examples in a little bit, but this is what David writes. It says, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand. Here's what's really cool. Even when David was penning this, when it says the Lord says to my Lord, it's literally translated the, 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 the Yahweh, the name of God, says to Adonai. It literally gives the distinction in the original when Pete wrote it that Yahweh said to Adonai. What that means is that, that God the Father said to the chosen one, the anointed one. He, and so we see it here, even when David's pinning in a psalm that, that the Lord, that Yahweh said to Adonai. He invites him, he says, sit in my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Verse 2, the Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of power and holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth uh, will be yours. Check out verse 4, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations. He filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook of the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. What a beautiful psalm of this king priest, the Messiah. David says, and I mean, Peter says in Acts, uh, Acts 2 that, that David was talking about this Jesus. So we read this whole psalm and realize he's talking about Christ here. He says, the Lord, Yahweh, says to Adonai. Could you imagine that picture in heaven? This is literally God giving David a picture of what happened after Jesus ascended. Remember, we talked about that in Acts 1, that, that Jesus ascended on high. And Luke preached on a couple weeks ago about how whenever, whenever Jesus entered back into heaven again, walking through the gates of people, bringing a redeemed humanity, a redeemed flesh into, the, into, the, into glory, into the Father. Could you imagine this picture that David is getting us to see that the Yahweh, the Lord, the Father, looks to the Son and says, come here, Son, and sit down beside me. Uh, I don't know if you're Jesus walks into glory, and, and Yahweh says to Adonai, the chosen one, come and sit down right here beside me, Son. Come and sit down. Take your place right here beside me. He says, sit at my right hand. The Father invites the Son to take a seat. One author said, because it was the job complete and accepted, that the Father was satisfied with the Son's work, and he said, come, Son, sit down beside me. One author said, seated and completed. So he says, the Yahweh says to Adonai, come sit at my right hand. And then we have these words, until I make your enemies your footstool. 
until it gives the picture of there's a guarantee here. That the father looks to the son and says, sit down right here for a moment until I make all of your enemies your footstool. What does that mean? That means that there's, in God's mind, there's no fear of the future. And in the mind of God, he's not in heaven going, what's going on right now? No, he is currently now, even now, making the enemies of his son his footstool. May we not fear the future either, church. It's a promise. And so some of you are saying, Justin, this sounds weird about making enemies the footstool. Like, what does that even mean? Let me, let me kind of, kind of how, does, how does God make enemies the footstool of Jesus? Right now in this present age, I'll tell you how, through the preaching of the gospel. Because all across this world, the enemies of God spiritually have, a, have strongholds and oppressions. And as the gospel is going out and it's being preached and people are coming to trust Jesus, what happens is, is little by little, God the Father is making that enemy of oppression the, the, the footstool of, of our Savior. Right now in the present age, that's how God is making the enemies of Jesus his footstool through the preaching of the gospel. But let me tell you this, I would not be a faithful preacher if I didn't. There will be a day that all flesh and spiritual will be made. If, if those the spiritually and physically, all who've rejected Jesus, God will make the footstool of the Messiah. Right now in this present age, God has given us the gospel to preach. And as the gospel is being preached and people are choosing to believe and accept in Christ, the enemies are being made footstool. But there will be a day that ultimately all the enemies of this Messiah will be made his footstool. That's in the second advent, the second coming of Christ. What we'll read about in verses 5 through 7 of Psalm 110. As I said earlier, Psalm 110 is the most quoted Old Testament passage in the New Testament. Jesus himself quotes it in Luke chapter 20 when he says, But he said to them, How can they say that the Christ is David's son? That, that was a question being asked. Well, how could Jesus be both the son of David and the Lord of David? And so he quotes Psalm 110. It says, For David himself says in the book of Psalms, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. What Jesus was trying to tell them is that, that ultimately that, that there, there would be something that where David knew that there would be one greater than David who would, who would come, that, that they'd be different in nature and different in reign, that David's reign ended with his death and the Messiah would reign forever. We see Psalm 110 in Hebrews chapter 1. We see it in 1 Corinthians 15, 25, and we see it vividly in Hebrews chapter 10, 12 and 13, which I'll read for you real quick. It says, but when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made his footstool for his feet. So, Justin, that's a weird picture. It's, uh, making enemies a footstool, is, it, it was something that they would have been very well aware of. It's all through the Old Testament. It's, it's, it's illustrated in Joshua chapter 10, verse 24. I know there's a lot of verses, but I just want to kind of show you this. It says, when they had brought those kings out to Joshua, Joshua summoned all the men of Israel and said to the chiefs of the men of war who had gone with him, come near, come near and put your feet on the necks of those of these kings, then he came near and put their feet on their necks. In First Kings, it says, uh, "Until the Lord gave them 
put them uh, under the soles of his feet. And here's the, here's the imagery for the Jew that they understood with this, making your, your enemies your footstool, that it was, the, it was the image of full authority that encompasses even those who in vain oppose the Lord's chosen It's really hard to turn a page and holding this mic. <clears throat> so now look back to Psalm 110. So it says, The Lord Yahweh says to Adonai, Come and sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Here's, if you want to take notes this morning, while Jesus, in the session of Jesus, while Jesus is seated, while seated, number one, if you're taking notes, Jesus is ruling. Jesus is ruling. Look at verses two and three. It says, the Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Look at this verse, uh, the, end of, the end of two, uh, or sorry, ver, yeah, ver, end of two. It says, the, to rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power and the holy garments from the womb of the morning. The dew of your youth will be yours. This morning, I want you to know, in the session of Jesus, in the sitting of Jesus, when the Father exalted him and said, Son, sit down beside me, that Jesus is ruling. There is no one outside his sovereign rule. There's not a square inch on this earth that Jesus cannot go and say, I'm the ruler of what's going on here. His dominion, listen to me, child of God, is not in jeopardy. It says rule in the midst of your enemies. What that's saying is that all of his enemies will be forced to acknowledge his rule. This is as sure as the dew of the morning, so is his rule. Augustine said it like this, his reign shall have no end. His enemies therefore made his footstool while he is sitting at the right, on the right hand of his father. As it is written, this is going on now and this will go on until the end. Him sitting R.C. Sproul says, mark the beginning of the full and final defeat of his enemies. Even now he is working to destroy them. He cannot fail. So no foe of his can finally defeat him or those united to him by faith alone. Therefore, let our foes do their worst. We are safe in Christ. Listen to me this morning. Luke and I were talking this week and just kind of walking. This is one of the great things. We're just walking through, talking through sermon stuff. And, and he said this. Here's the reality. Jesus is ruling. You know what that means? Is that you and I don't make Jesus Lord. He is Lord. The Father's made him the Lord. The Father's exalting to the right hand of God and told him to sit down. He is Lord. It's just a matter of me and you recognizing and submitting to it. Right here in this present age, we have the opportunity to say, yes, Jesus is Lord, but there will be a day that all of his enemies will become his footstool and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So number one, Jesus is ruling, but not only is he ruling, but Jesus is interceding. Look at verse four. This is a beautiful thing about Jesus being king, but he's also priest in his sitting. We understand his priestly duties. Look at verse four. It says, the Lord has sworn. This is Yahweh again. So Yahweh not only looked to Adonai, the chosen one, and said, sit down right here, but he also promised him something. He also swore to him something. So it says, verse four, that the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. 
You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Jesus is ruling. Jesus is interceding. says, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind that you are a priest forever. And here we have this beautiful picture, reality of who our Messiah is, that he's a king that's ruling the universe. But he's also a sympathetic, gentle priest forever. Isn't it a beautiful reality that our Messiah isn't this weak individual, but he's a risen king, but at the same time, he's gentle with those who are his? Does it get any better than that for me and you to understand that? And just for, I know we're getting close to the time, but look, it says, so you're a priest forever. I have to just mention this. this is after the order of Melchizedek. Melchizedek's an interesting fellow. Uh, we see him in, in Genesis 14, and that's it. We see him for, for one and a half verses, and we, he has... No beginning and no end. He just shows up to bless Abraham. And then when we get to the book of Hebrews, Hebrews spends some time kind of unpacking this order of Melchizedek thing. But here's some interesting things about Melchizedek. First of all, it says that Jesus, this Messiah, was in the order of Melchizedek. As in there was a priestly order that was, a, that was in line with Melchizedek, his, his family, if you will. Like there was this line of priests after the order of Melchizedek. So there are some things about Melchizedek. Melchizedek was both a king of Salem, and he was also a priest in Salem. We see this in Genesis 14. Salem comes from the word shalom, which means what? Peace, right? So catch this for a moment. Melchizedek was the king of a place called peace. He was the king of peace, but he was also a priest in this place called peace. So he was the king of peace, and he was also the priest of peace. Anybody following me yet at all? There's this guy named Melchizedek who Jesus came in the order of that this dude was the king of peace, and he was the priest of peace. Anybody following me yet? Now, all that happened in Genesis 14. Do you know what he brings to Abraham? Bread and wine. What? There's just some incredibly interesting things about this guy named Melchizedek, and I can't, I'm not going to expound any more upon that. But what we understand, looking in the order of Melchizedek, which means in Melchizedek's line, that that means there would have been a kingly office and there would be a priestly office. And so Jesus comes in and fulfills both of those. He's in the order of Melchizedek. He's both king and he's both priest. Not only is he the sovereign king, but he's the eternal priest. And he himself is both the priest and the sacrifice. He, he is now seated, which symbolizes a finished and accepted work that forever the Father has promised him. Jesus is the final priest. He's promised him that, that ultimately he has promised when sitting down, the Father looks at his son and says, you have all power, but your, your work is forever satisfying. It's finished. It's done. No more need for sacrifices. Forever, your sacrifice is sufficient. 
we obey Jesus as our king, we also enter his kingdom through his own sacrifice. Know this, child of God, that Jesus' sacrifice is finished and it's accepted forever. Which means your salvation is as well. He's seated. The sacrifice, the atonement for sin is complete and satisfied. Salvation is here and it's done. So therefore, those whom he saved, your salvation is forever. You have a priest who is seated in heaven and he is merciful and gentle to those who are his. Thirdly, the third thing that we see in the session of Jesus is not only Jesus ruling, not only is Jesus interceding, but there's the word until there. Sit in my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool, which means that that until means he will stand back up again. One day, the third point is that while seated, Jesus is waiting to return. Look at verses five through seven. Psalm 110 says, the Lord is at your right hand. And check this imagery, and you see this in Revelation, I think, 15, that this, this imagery that's happening here when the Lord comes back, and he says, he will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses, and shatter chiefs over the wide earth. So Justin, that doesn't sound like the Jesus I want to follow. That's the exact Jesus I want to follow. The one who has ultimate authority that all enemies will be crushed one day. That is the Jesus I want to follow. That is the Jesus I follow. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. Look at verse seven. There's like this crazy calamity of verse six. Then it just says, and he will drink from the brook by the way, and he will lift up his head. This peace, this not struggling, if you will, that when he returns, it's going to be a lot different than his first coming. He will come in power and he will come in might. He will come in his glory to be revealed for all to see. Calvin says this, as a shepherd is gentle towards his flock, but fierce and formidable towards wolves and thieves, in like manner Christ is kind and gentle towards those who commit themselves to his cause. While those who willfully reject his yoke shall feel with what awful and terrible power he is armed. Jesus will come again. That's what we're seeing in verses 5 to 7. His first advent was marked by burden and sorrow, but his second advent will be marked by triumph. And listen to me, ease. We talk about the battle of Armageddon and things. Listen to me. He literally just shows up, puts his foot down, and says the word, and it's done. Ease. He's not, he's not carrying a burden when he comes back. He's coming in all of his glory and his might. God has fought with sin of men for their good, but one day his long-suffering will give way to final judgment whenever the Father makes all of his enemies his footstool. Calvin again says this, Christ is gentle and kind to his people, but this gentleness and kindness is an expression of strength, not weakness. 
is also the fierce protector of his children, and he will judge the earth in righteousness. Our only hope to endure that judgment is to come under the blood of his sacrifice by trusting in him alone. When we do so, we enjoy not only his kingly rule, but also his priestly meditation. And Calvin asks, are you trusting in Christ alone this day? Now, back to Acts chapter 2 real quick. What do we have going on here? Here's your scenario. You have a group of guys who knows what it means to have Jesus as their king and their priest. Peter understood Psalm 110 when he quoted it. And what does that produce for them through the book of Acts? Fearlessness, boldness, sticking to the mission. But then you had another group of people who understood this about Jesus, that he was ascended and he was seated. But he was not their king and priest. They were his enemies. So when you get to when they heard these things and they were cut to the heart, what's going on there is they realized that they were the enemy of God. And it produces grief and sorrow. The reality is this morning you were either the one who knows Jesus as king and priest or you're an enemy of God. Say, now we're all, no, listen to me. Because of sin, we are born enemies of God. But thanks be to God. Listen to this. Thanks be to God. I'm not, I'm, I'm not getting Luke's sermon, but thanks be to God that these men who were once enemies of God, so we see 12 people who knew Jesus as King and Messiah. We see a group of people who, had, who were God's enemy, but what we also see is a God who makes enemies his friend. That these dudes who were enemies of God, God was about to save them. That God was about to do a work in their life. But what, what, what persuaded them, what cut them to the heart is they realized they stood guilty before a holy God. I want to tell you this morning, I'm going to take my glasses off so you can see me. That if you have not trusted in Jesus, you're still an enemy of God. And right now, through the grace and mercy of the Lord Jesus, I can stand up this morning and say, trust in Jesus and you will become a friend of God. That he can become your king and your priest. And your king sits on a throne who rules all the universe. He is a priest forever, forever making intercession on your behalf. Or you can choose to leave here today still an enemy of God. And I pray that you come back next week and we get to share this again. But listen to me, one day, one day, the until will be finished and the Son of Man will stand up and he will come. And then I can't tell you that you're gonna have the opportunity that you have today. Will you trust Jesus as your King? It's easy as just simply believing and trusting in him. Hey, I'm gonna be standing, I know I gotta quit. I'm gonna be standing down here at the front. Luke's in the back, Ryan's in the back. Paul somewhere in here. I don't know where he is. There he is right there, where he always sits. Come on, Justin. <clears throat> Will you trust in the Lord this morning? And I know, say, Justin, we don't do hellfire, but the reality is, upon Peter's sermon, is that Christ is seated, which means, which means that right now, 
Right now, he has all authority, but the, the Father is subduing all of his enemies. And this morning, he's doing it through the preaching of the gospel. You trust in Jesus. I'll be standing here there in the back. You move as the Lord leads. Father, we love you. God, we thank you for your love for us. God, we thank you for your word. <clears throat> God, we thank you that, that the Son ascended on high. that he brought a redeemed humanity to you. God, that you looked to him and said, sit down. God, we thank you that he is in complete authority right now. God, this very prayer that I'm praying right now, he's taking it and bringing it to you. We recognize that. God, I thank you're a God that makes enemies your friends. So God, I pray this morning that you will do that. God, that there are people in here that are trusting in anything and everything in the world except you. God, I pray that today that you will make it so real that they're lost and, and hopeless without you that they cannot escape their indictment this morning. That they sound guilty before a holy God. Oh, but God, may they see this Messiah that you sent. That they can trust in him believe in him, repent of sin, and that this day they can move from enemy to family. God, please do that today. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. You can stand.